you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, we're going to take the next, this week and the next three, to uh, walk through uh, the Advent season, and we will be looking at special uh, text through the weeks leading up to Christmas to highlight our time of Advent. And so I'm excited about the opportunity to be able to, uh, to walk through Advent together uh, and to um, be able to celebrate what Advent is truly about, the coming of Christ. Uh, and so if you have your worship guide, you'll find in your worship guide this morning there's an outline that's provided for you, and you're welcome to uh, follow along and make notes, take notes on that outline. Uh, but if you have your Bible, open up to Isaiah chapter 9. Verses 1 through 7, and the title of the message this morning is God's Gift to the Nations. God's Gift to the Nations. But before we go any further, let us pray. Father, you are gracious, you are merciful, and you are loving. Thank you, Father, that you have provided a way to reconcile us to you, that you have purchased our souls. Lord, we have sung about that this morning as we worship you. And this morning, Lord, we continue worshiping you as we open your word and continue reading in your word and uh, hearing your word. And so I pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts, give us a clarity of mind, illumine our minds to understand And to comprehend your word and open our hearts, Father, to love your word. And give us a strong desire and passion to apply your word in our lives. We ask this in the strong and the powerful name of Christ. Amen. If you found your place in chapter 9, say amen. Let us begin reading. But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence." As with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor is at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government, or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. I realized about three quarters of the way through the passage that I'm rereading what Mr. Al has already read this morning. (laughs) But nonetheless, this is the text, Isaiah chapter 9, where Isaiah brings a prophecy of tremendous hope in the midst of a time of darkness. 
And so as we begin to celebrate Advent, December, uh, as, as December is, is ushered in and the, the time of Christmas draws near, Advent, we really, during Advent, we, we celebrate the coming of Christ. We celebrate that Christ is the light of the world. He is the hope of the nations. Christ is the incarnate one. He is God the Father stepping down and taking upon the form of flesh and becoming man. God Himself stooping down to clothe Himself in the flesh of His creation. Isaiah's prophecy speaks of hope and the celebration of Advent culminates on the day of Christmas for the Christian calendar. This hope that Isaiah celebrates and and prophesies about is the hope of the coming light that liberates men and women from darkness and bondage. So I want to take a moment just to paint for us the picture of then and then bring us to the now as we open up this passage this morning. Well, then the message of Isaiah, true hope and deliverance, is set in contrast to the backdrop of the hopelessness of exile. That hopelessness of exile is because when exile occurs, men and women are drug away into slavery and bondage. Their lives are lived through oppression from some foreign nation. And for Israel, this was the case. The northern kingdoms, the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, those two tribes, they bordered the Sea of Galilee. They've already been overtaken by the Assyrians at this point, and their leaders have been exiled. Despite Isaiah's counsel, King Ahaz, who is king of Judah, continues down the wrong path, leading Judah away from God. King Ahaz puts Judah on the fast track to apostasy. And he prompts God's judgment in doing so. They, Judah, and the whole nation of Israel have forsaken God. And the worst part about their forsaking God is they don't even realize their sin. Kind of like Samson when he didn't realize the presence of God had even left him. They don't realize their sin and so in, in, in Isaiah chapter 1, I want to show you the apostasy in Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. The word comes to Isaiah and proclaiming it, prophesying it to the people of Judah. Listen, O heavens and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manager, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. He says, alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? He says of the nation, the whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises and welts, raw raw wounds, not pressed or bandaged nor softened with oil. He says in verse 7, your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in, in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. You get the picture? Israel has 
forsaken God, Judah has left God. But not only is it the apostasy of the people, but also there's there's a darkness that has creeped over the land. If you kind of fast forward to chapter two, beginning in verse six, there is a, a darkness. He says, for you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. Here's why, because they are filled with influences from the east and they are soothsayers like the Philistines. This is these are God's people. They are soothsayers like the Philistines and they strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Their mindset then is is corrupt. Their land has also been filled with silver and gold and there's no end to their treasures here. Here the uh, the description of the land. They are filled with material possessions there's their land has also been filled with horses it's military might and there is no end to their chariots their land has also been filled with idols they worship the work of their hands which their fingers have made fast forward to one more place chapter 3 verse 8 for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen Because their speech and their actions are against the Lord. To rebel against His glorious presence. The expression of their faces bears witness against them. Listen. And they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them. People of Israel, Judah had walked away from God. They had apostatized. They had allowed the influences of other nations to creep in. They had allowed their minds to be distorted. They had forsaken the Lord, their God. In fact, two of the Davidic kings of Judah, kings Ahaz, whom is receiving this prophecy, and a king that comes later, Manasseh, they practice worship, pagan worship of the god Molech. And make their children walk through, their sons walk through fire, or pass through fire as a sacrifice sacrifice to this pagan God. Instead of leading the people to the Lord, King Ahaz has categorically rejected God and he's led the people into consulting mediums and spiritists. They consult their dead fathers and and forefathers, their ancestors for wisdom. In fact, in chapter 8, verse 19, he says, When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? And the point couldn't be more clear. Why? Why go to the dead to consult the dead on behalf of the living They had adopted pagan rituals in their lives. And at this point, they had lost sight of God. The result of their apostasy in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 8 leads us in to chapter 9. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. And it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will curse their king and their God as they face upward. Cursing God. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish. And they will be driven away into darkness. You see, they have removed God from their lives. They face upward and make a mockery of God. And things for Judah are going from bad to worse. 
And in the midst of this dark prophecy, in the midst of this judgment that comes, Isaiah in chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 7, kind of gives us a glimpse of the bright hope of the future for Israel and for the people of God. It's as if the curtain of darkness has just kind of been pulled back momentarily and a glimmer of light and hope penetrates the darkness of Israel's apostasy. In the midst of this darkness and their forsaking God, this light kind of shines through momentarily through these words of Isaiah the prophet. In the midst of his judgment, this prophecy comes forth and it is a bright light. It is hope that comes forth. Well, that was then. I want to fast forward to now and say that we are not too far removed from the climate of spiritual darkness that covered Israel as a nation during Isaiah's day. A similar darkness covers the nation that we live in today. I was stunned during the election process and the Democratic National Convention to hear the crowd overwhelmingly and categorically reject God. In fact, the man on the stage didn't even know how to respond. He was surprised himself, I believe. But it's not just the DNC, and I'm not picking on Democrats by any means. I'm just making a statement of observation. It's, it's not just there. It's across the land. It's across this country that we live in. There is a rejection of God. Prayer in the social arena has been regulated so that prayer must be offered to a generic God. The Ten Commandments, listen, they have been removed from all the public or from public places. It's become politically incorrect to speak about Jesus Christ. And the name and acknowledgement of God has been removed from public schools. Abortion has become an acceptable sacrifice of hedonistic living, not that much different. From Molech, what Ahaz was worshiping. Daily horoscopes are available at will. They're in the papers. They're on the internet. Our idols in America have become more sophisticated, but they are just as prevalent. And we, too, worship the work of our hands. The idols of self and materialism are, are two of the greatest idols in the church's apostasy in America. We live in a nation where, like the children of Israel, we call evil good and good evil. Yet in the midst of the darkness, we still deny the problem has anything to do with self. And we too fail. This is the scariest part. We too fail to recognize the plight of our own sin. We too fail to see where our sin blinds us from the glory of God. The church at large fails to grapple with the weight of our own sin. And so my hope for us this morning is that we will hear the prophecy of Isaiah as a plea for God's people to repent and to return to covenant faithfulness. 
My prayer for us this morning is that we will see the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in the incarnate Christ, the light of the world, and that we will be gripped with the hope of this prophecy. We will be gripped with the hope of what Isaiah himself proclaims, and we too will become proclaimers of this great light that has come into the world. So the first point I want us to see this morning is God has given a gift to the nations and that gift is the promise of light. The promise of light in verses 1 through 3. I won't read it all again, but Isaiah says darkness has covered the nation. It's covered the land. There will be no more gloom one day. But for now there is gloom. There is anguish. And he points out to the earlier times of Zebulun and Naphtali. And these two territories, Zebulun and Naphtali, have been treated with contempt by the Lord. That is, they have been overtaken. They have gone away under oppression and have been exiled. And Isaiah calls to mind's eye the place of utter destruction and invasion of Zebulun and Naphtali for the people of Judah to, to, to see, to think on, to remember and these tribes and their territories of Samaria and the northern kingdom, they were, they were conquered and devastated, as we said, by the Assyrians. Their homes, think about it, their homes and their livelihood, everything they once knew was no longer. Gloom overshadowed their minds and anguish filled their hearts. And Isaiah's prophecy is an imminent word that is spoken to the unrepentant people of Judah. Should they not heed the call of God and return to covenant faithfulness, exile will come upon them as well. And really the call, the truth that Judah must see and grapple with is that covenant relationship with God is not a license for impure or unfaithful living. Being God's people does not abrogate the call of righteous living. It does not diminish the call of God on our life just because we, we say that we are a people of God. Just because Israel claimed to be a nation of God and God's people, it did not abrogate their need for holy, faithful, righteous living. Neither does it abrogate the need of the church today for holy, faithful, righteous living. Looking forward, Isaiah speaks of a greater day, confident of what will come into the land of darkness. And he says it there in verse 1. But later on, he shall make it glorious. He shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. In other words, what he's saying is there's light at the end of the tunnel. Remain faithful. Stay true. Walk uprightly. There's light at the end of the tunnel. The light will dawn on this land and, and it's a symbol of what Israel was supposed to be to the nations, a light to the nations. And Isaiah recognized the darkness in the times that he was in and he proclaimed the hope of glory that was to come. So there was darkness in the land and here's Isaiah proclaiming in this small portion the hope that is to come and, and infiltrate the darkness I want you to see what happens when the light shines, the illumination of the light in verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. 
that passage sound familiar from anywhere in the New Testament? Turn to Matthew chapter 4. Now begin in verse 12. Here's the stage. Jesus has just finished a time of testing or temptation where he was driven out into the wilderness for 40 days. And he begins his ministry. And in verse 12, now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulon and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan of Galilee of Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death upon them a light dawned. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing to see the prophecy that Israel speaks of finds its fulfillment in the New Testament here in the person and the work of Christ? He begins his ministry in Galilee, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This is to fulfill all that Christ himself, all that God's word, all that God has proclaimed and prophesied about what will happen when this light comes. And this light will illuminate the darkness, and there will be no darkness in that land when the light shines and illuminates it. In fact, in John 1, 9, John writes, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. John 8, 12, then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, we like the prophet Isaiah must recognize the dark time in which we live and we must herald the message of the light in the darkness. When men and women, get the picture, when men and women come to know Christ, their, their lives are brought out of darkness into this marvelous light. These people are in darkness awaiting a Savior, awaiting the Messiah. And all of a sudden, in this place, Zebulun and Naphtali, Galilee of the Gentiles, not even the Jews, but the Gentiles settled there. Here comes a light shining. This Messiah, this one who comes, he is not just the savior of the Jews. He is a savior of the Gentiles, too. He is God's gift to the nations. And this light comes and pierces the darkness and there's gloom and there's anguish. And that gloom and anguish is dispelled and it flees. And the light of Christ, when it shines in the life of people, calls them out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. 9 and 10, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This light illumines the darkness. Not only does it illumine the darkness, I want you to see what else the light does. The light attracts there's an attraction to the light. In verse 3, you shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. This gladness that comes, this is a, a, a gladness that, that comes from the light itself. The light is the source of gladness. 
and it will increase those who come to the light. You shall multiply the nation, that is, the messianic kingdom. The nation will grow. This light will grow the kingdom of God. You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And there is this increase to those who come to the light because the light of the gospel is attractive to those whom God calls. The attraction of the light, you shall multiply the nation. There's an increase in those who come to the light. And he says, as with gladness of harvest, rejoicing. And as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, these kind of seem to be a little bit odd. As with gladness of harvest, the picture is of the rejoicing that happens at harvest. There is a joy of reaping the fruit of one's labor. I was, I experienced just a tidbit of this this past year as I planted a garden at our house in Pollock. Just tomatoes and bell peppers, something simple. Just, you know, I don't really have a green thumb, so I, I just wanted to take it easy and see if I could be productive. And I tell you, I was so glad whenever... I saw the fruit start coming up or the, the bell peppers and the tomatoes start coming up. But it was hard work to get it to that point. I mean, there was some, some labor involved in trying to prepare the ground and get it ready. But when the fruit begins to come or the vegetable begins to come, when the, the toil of one's labor sees fruit that comes from it, there is a great rejoicing at that time. And in an agrarian society... This speaks to the heart of the people as with the gladness of harvest. There is a time when the toil is done and there is rejoicing at the time of harvest because the fruit of our labor is shown forth in what is before us and we rejoice because we are glad and we are excited that it has produced such an abundant crop. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil that is the victory over the enemy that is highlighted, safety from danger of war. The battle is over. There is now to be rejoicing as they plunder the enemy's camp and they take the spoils of war. The reason this is so joyful for the believer is because the believer has the privilege of reaping the harvest of a seed which Christ has already sown. It's not a seed which we have sown, but it's a seed which Christ Himself has sown. And and we have the joy of victory over the enemy that Christ has defeated in our behalf. You see the joy that comes from this light that enters the darkness. And He defeats the enemy. He sows in our lives and we are beneficiaries of the wonderful, tremendous blessing and gift of Christ. We are the messengers as well through which God redeems the souls of man and plunders the battleground of the enemy. Get a picture of that. We are those very messengers who take this gospel light and by the Holy Spirit's power and presence in our lives, we work to proclaim this gospel and we too will reap a harvest of those seeds which we have not sown. And others who come behind us will 
reap the harvest of seeds which they have not sown. But the wonderful beauty and the blessing of of what happens here is it kind of leads us right into verse 4 where we see that our victory has been secured. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. That is to say that there is deliverance from oppression as God's gift. God's gift to the nations is deliverance from oppression. And here it represents the liberation from foreign domination for Israel. Very real, very practical. They will be liberated from the foreign domination and those who have taken over and have exiled them. And that is a very practical application of what's being said and how the people see it here. And he says, as at the battle of Midian. Think about the battle of Midian. What happened there? As we've been studying through Judges in Sunday school. Gideon, the leader of the fearsome 300, right? And at the battle of Gideon, God accomplished a great victory through Gideon and those 300 men, the Midianites and, and the Amalekites and the sons of the east were lying in the valley with their camels and they were as numerous as the sands on the seashore. But the point that he's making here is that God sovereignly orchestrated the battle where 300 men defeated an innumerable host of men. And God accomplished victory in such a way that they would know victory was by the hand, by God's hand and not by their own strength. See, God is a faithful and powerful deliverer. This is the promise of victory secured. I want you to get the picture as we kind of put all this together in the same way the gospel proclaims to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. You see, true freedom from bondage has been sovereignly secured through the cross of Christ and freedom from bondage can only come through faith in Christ. This deliverance from bondage and freedom from bondage that he's talking about in verse 4 is there will no longer be a yoke of hardship and oppression and bondage, but now there will be a gentle yoke. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you Rest. See, God's gift to the nation is victory secured. But this victory is a decisive victory. And we see this victory in verse 5 as being decisive. The decisive victory in verse 5 is seen as the utter destruction of the enemy. The language here is every boot of the booted warrior in battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. There is no remnant of the enemy left. The defeat has been decisive. 
Those who once put God's people in bondage, the power that held them in bondage is no longer. Every trace of them has been burned up. This victory is a decisive victory. You know where we're going with this? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 through 57 speaks also of this decisive victory in the life of the believer. The power of the oppressor and the chains of bondage have, have been annihilated. 1 Corinthians 15 says, But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory has been decisive. Every power that would seek to enslave the people of God in bondage has been defeated through Christ Himself. He has broken the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. We're comfortable with this application because Christ Himself makes this application In Scripture, it was the Jews who looked for a political Messiah, but Jesus Himself was not that political Messiah. Instead, He comes to free men from the burden of sin, from the bondage of sin. Maybe this morning you need to know the power of Christ through the secured victory that He has accomplished on behalf of the sinner. Maybe... Maybe this morning you need to be reminded of the power of the secured victory that Christ has accomplished over sin and death. But I I want you to see finally this morning the, the third aspect of God's gift to the nations is a king over the nations. A king over the nations. In verses 6 and 7, he says, For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest upon his shoulders. This child literally that will be born to us. In Luke 2.11 we see, he says, For today in the city of David there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We see Christ as the babe in his humanity And the Son who has been given to us, we see as well in John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. And He says this government will rest upon His shoulders. We might think here that it means the government will pursue Him But I don't think that's the meaning of this passage when he says the government will rest upon his shoulders. Instead, think think differently. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he commissions the disciples, All authority, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, to this one, God's gift, the child king, Christ, the Messiah. All authority, the government will rest upon his shoulders. All authority has been given to him. And this is kingship language. And in verse 6, he uses four names to characterize who this one is. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. You would think with a conquering and liberating king that there would be harsh words to describe this conquering and liberating king. But instead we have these gentle, really tender words that describe this king. This king is not like other kings. For this king is characterized as a wonderful counselor. This king is characterized as one who gives guidance to the weak. He's characterized as one who gives wisdom for living. We see that even in James as we've been walking through James. Ask of God. And He'll give you wisdom. This wonderful counselor is one who whom the child of God can come to when, when he's hurting and, 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 and when he's in need and, and when she's in need and, and when there's a tough decision to make and, and when, there's, uh, when there's a great need for hearing the counsel of God, we come and we know that this king is our wise counselor, our wonderful counselor, that he is ready and willing to counsel us and, and give us wisdom for righteous living. Not only is he a wonderful counselor, he's a mighty God. The fact that he is a mighty God, he's strong, he's powerful. There is none who can, there is none who can overtake him or overcome him or, or overpower him. He is mighty. He can defeat every, it's okay, Aaron, Aaron will be okay. He can defeat and pull down any stronghold. This is a mighty God where we can run to for refuge. There is nothing that can penetrate the arms of God. Mighty speaks of his character, of his strength, of his power. He is able to empower even the weakest of men and women so that by them his spirit accomplishes great things through them. In our weakness, He is made strong. When I battle temptation and sin, my mighty God provides a way of escape and He strengthens me. We are too, when we're too weak to fight off the temptations that come against us, He, he will strengthen us and, and equip us by His Word. He is a mighty God. <coughs> he is eternal Father. Oh, what a portrait of a father. This father will do no wrong. This father will not leave his children high and dry. He will not abandon. He will not orphan his children. He will not abuse his children. He will not treat his children with contempt. This father is a father who is 
everything that defines good and right and what fatherhood would be. He is not an absent father. He is an involved father. And he is an eternal father. Get the picture. He is this father for eternity. Spans all time. He is wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. He is eternal father. He is Prince of Peace. And Prince of Peace doesn't mean just the absence of war or conflict, but it means the very presence of God. He is perfect peace. He is perfect holiness. He is perfect rest. He is perfection. And to know Christ is to know the peace of God that passes all understanding. There is no peace like the peace of this king. He is the prince of peace. Jesus Christ is the hope of the nations. God's gift to the nations is Jesus Christ, the very one that Isaiah prophesied about in 735 B.C. is the same one that comes and steps foot on Zebulon and Naphtali by the Sea of Galilee and comes as God in flesh incarnate and He brings the light into the darkness and the light of Christ pierces this darkness and transforms the lives of men and women and greatly increases the number of the nation. This is Jesus Christ, the King, the hope of the nations. And listen to the wonderful words of verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace. It will never end, for he is eternal. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. There is assurance for God's people then that this will be accomplished. And hear me out, there is assurance for God's people now that he is coming Again, and that when he returns, he returns to bring us into eternity. When he returns, he returns to take home all of those who have by faith believed on Jesus Christ as Savior and trusted him as Lord. For he is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father. Let me ask you this morning. Do you really truly know Christ, the Christ of Christmas, the Christ of the Advent? Have you truly experienced the victory that he has secured on our behalf? Do you know what it's like to be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? I beg of you this morning, if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, if you've never confessed your sin before Him and surrendered that He is Lord, trusting in the gift of Christ on the cross, if you've never done that this morning, it's as easy as praying and asking God 
surrendering your life to him, asking him to forgive you of your sin and trusting in him. If he's if he's leading you in that this morning, I want to encourage you and challenge you. Do not delay. Do not deny what God is calling you to do this morning. We're going to just have a brief time for response this morning. And I want to. I want to offer to you, if there's a question that you have about salvation, I would love to pray with you about it and talk to you about it. And maybe there are just some things that you need to spend some time in prayer about, just the wonder and the glory of God and His prophecy, preparing the way for Christ. I want to encourage you this morning and challenge you to respond as the Lord is leading you, May it be through a time of prayerful commitment. May it be through a time of praying, asking God and surrendering your life to Him. May it be through a time of recommitment this morning. I'm going to pray and you will have a time for response. Let us pray. Father, Your goodness and Your mercy is overwhelming. Thank you, Lord, that you love us. Thank you, Jesus, for entering the world to save us and ransom us from our sin. To decisively defeat the enemy. That we might see the light that you have brought into the world. Thank you for even opening our eyes to see. Lord, we rejoice this morning in your goodness and your grace. And we pray, Father, for your strength to live faithfully. Grip us, Lord Jesus, with the message of Advent, the hope, the light of Christ. Thank you, God, for your gift to the nations. Let us be heralds like Isaiah and and herald this wonderful message of light. Strengthen us, Father, to pursue you with all that we have and to be a light to others in the midst of the darkness that has encapsulated this land that we live in. May we be a radiant, shining example of your glory, a reflection of your glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.